Well, hello, and welcome to the next episode of the Decarb Connect podcast. I am so fortunate today to be joined by Emmanuel Brutin, who I'm just going to ask to directly introduce himself, and rather than my normal fiasco of over-introducing people. So, Emmanuel, tell us a little bit about you and uh, your role. Good afternoon, Alex, and I'm, I'm delighted to, to be here, and thanks a lot for the invitation. So I am a Public Affairs Director for SEM Bureau. SEM Bureau is actually the uh, association for the European cement industry, so our members are national cement associations uh, from across the EU and, uh, and a bit beyond. And in my current role, I'm basically uh, responsible for communicating about our industry, uh, and also I'm in charge of European advocacy. So in terms of my own background, I've been working on energy and climate change issues for for about 15 years in Brussels uh, and I joined Semburo just over a year ago. Okay so I, I know that your background is not yeah as you say it's a, a broader kind of policy and climate background. Tell us a little bit about I know you were at uh, National Grid before and just give us a little bit of the flavor of some of the climate work you've done and then we'll then we'll dig into Semburo and what what you know your, your, what your views are from there. Yes, yeah, so, so I have actually quite quite a diverse background. So, so when I started my career, actually uh, in my early years, I work uh, in public affairs for the European rail industry. So, really trying to promote the the you know the, the advantages and interests of the of the European rail transport sector. Um, and following this, indeed, I've been working for, for National Grid, so representing them in Brussels uh, for the past six years. And then my focus was um, very much about, you know, how, how we can have policies which uh, which further the integration of, uh, of renewable energy into, into the European energy system. Uh, and it's true that when I joined uh, Semburo over a year, a year ago, it was it was a very different challenge because previously I had worked, you know, for, um, you know, industries like rail or, or like the renewable energy. Um, which were very much, you know, uh, in industries which, which were defended by, by the European institutions, whereas obviously joining the cement industry, there is a big challenge around industrial decarbonisation and reducing the CO2 emissions from the sector. So today then, our focus is on the Green Deal. So should we kick off uh, with just your view, your perception of like what, what has been the reaction to the EU Green Deal from industry? Tell me about what you're seeing, what you're hearing, and, and maybe, you know, your own your own view on it as well. Yeah, so, you know, when I joined SEM Bureau j- just over a year ago, uh, this was really something I was wondering about. How would the industry react to the Green Deal and to, to the challenge of, uh, of carbon neutrality? And as you said just a few seconds ago, I've actually been quite impressed by the reactions from, from the European cement industry. Um, in fact, from, from the beginning when the European Green Deal was published and when carbon neutrality was uh, erected as, a, as an objective for the, for the European Union, um, the position of our boards and, and of the CEOs of SEM Bureau was very much to take a proactive position and indeed basically see how the sector could really fit into this objective and really contribute to the European Green Deal. Um, and of course, we will come back to this a bit later when we, when we discuss our carbon neutrality roadmap. But, um, but, but that's, you know, that's a very important document which we published just a few months after uh, the European Green Deal. And I think this, you know, this trend towards proactive positioning and, and very positive reactions from the industry translating into Sembro's work, but also in the work of, um, of, of our member companies. So, you know, if you look at what happened in the, in the past year uh, within the industry, you see a, a tre- tremendous amount of change. 
um, you've seen all the big, you know, major European cement players uh, adopting CO2, CO2 re emission reduction targets by 2030 or 2050. Um, you've seen the launching of new products. Many of our members have launched, you know, low carbon cement, uh, low carbon concrete as well. And you, you also see this in terms of, the, you know, the pace of investments has also uh, fastened to, to an extent which, which you know, honestly surprised, surprised me. So if you look at carbon capture, for instance, today, um, you know, our members are really investing very significant amounts of money uh, towards this technology. So on the whole, I was, you know, I was really, really glad actually to see that the industry was being so proactive. Obviously, you, as you know, um, the podcast gets a sort of fairly international listener base. I know everyone listening to this, 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 of course, everyone's going to know the Green Deal and its basic premise, but can you just highlight like what are the sort of, you know, the main areas that present a challenge, but, you know, one that the industry is up for, but wh where do you see the main challenges coming from in what the EU has laid out so far? Well, I mean, I mean, clearly, the, you know, the biggest challenge, especially when it comes to the European cement industry, will, will be to be reaching carbon neutrality by 2050. And that's a very, very ambitious objective from, from the European Union. It doesn't mean that every single sector will have to be carbon neutral by, by 2050, because we also have some carbon sinks, uh, absorb, like forest absorbing CO2, for instance. But however, it means a very strong effort will be expected from all the sectors. And this, I think, you know, if you, if you look at cement, which, which accounts today, I mean, you, you have different figures, but it's between 6 and 8% of worldwide CO2 emissions. Uh, in itself, it's a very significant challenge. Um, but I think you also have very strong opportunities for the, for the cement industry. So a big point of the European Green Deal is to promote a circular economy. And I, I think we'll come, also come back to this a bit later, but uh, the European cement industry is very well positioned, actually, to, to play a central role um, uh, in this objective. Okay. All right. Well, we've already um, referenced a little bit the carbon neutrality roadmap that some bureau had developed. And if I remember rightly, we had obviously had our brief chat before the podcast. I think you were saying that the first version was drawn up in 2012. Is that right? Uh, it was actually in twenty in twenty thirteen. Ah, so sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. That's fine. So we had our first version in in twenty thirteen, and it was looking at a, an eighty percent CO two emission reduction by by twenty fifty. Um, and this was subsequently updated in 2018. But um, but anyway, what we've done with uh, with our roadmap, which was which was now published in uh, in May um, 2020, uh, was really two things. I mean, firstly, we wanted to look at this European Green Deal objective of reaching carbon neutrality by 2050. So we're really looking at you know how can we contribute to this objective. Um, but the other thing which we've done, which is which is also very important, is we've really taken a full life cycle approach. So you know we've we've looked not only at uh, reducing CO2 emissions from clinker and, and from cement, but also down the value chain. So, you know, when cement is turned into concrete, how can you have further uh, CO2 emission savings? And when concrete is used in buildings and when concrete is recycled. So we really looked at, uh, at the full uh, value chain. Uh, now, just to take you through very quickly some of the key findings of, uh, of our roadmap, because I think, I think these are quite important. Uh, the first one is, uh, in terms of technologies, carbon capture, use and storage will remain very, very important for our sector. It's about 42% of our uh, emission savings between now and, uh, and 2050. And you see uh, currently quite a lot of projects happening on CCUS for, from across the industry. Um, what our roadmap identifies, though, is one challenge that uh, as a sector we will face in the future is, you know, even when you're installing CCUS technology on your cement kiln, what 
will you do with the CO2 you capture? And this CO2, you can either reuse it. So, you know, we have wonderful projects in, in Europe um, currently, which, you know, consist in capturing the CO2 from a cement kiln, mixing it with hydrogen to, to produce synthetic fuel. So that's, that's a possible example. But, um, but if we're not, you know, reusing this CO2, we will at least need to transport it. And, and this will be a challenge for the sector to, to have this CO2 transport infrastructure. That's really something where, where we think you know national and, and EU governments should uh, should strongly support us. Well, can I just I'll ask you on that point? Are you hearing much so far about a kind of a real plan for CO two transportation in Europe? So I think some some projects are, are indeed coming together. So, uh, for instance, at the end of this year, the European Commission will review the, the regulation on the trans-European uh, energy networks, which does feature actually some dedicated funding for uh, cross-border CO2 pipelines. Um, you also have real projects taking uh, taking shape. So, for instance, you know the Northern Lights, Northern Lights project connecting Norway and, and some other Scandinavian countries through through CO2 transport is also happening. But that's but that's, uh, I mean, as I told you, it will be a major, major challenge for our industry precisely because, um, you know, you have over 200 cement kilns uh, all across all, all across Europe, and they're quite spread, you know, quite evenly across the EU territory. So some of them may be in, a, you know, in an industrial hub where, where they could share CO2 infrastructure with with a nearby steel factory, for instance. Uh, but however, some cement kilns are, you know, quite quite deep in the in the countryside actually, and and then the situation is a bit more challenging. Yeah, I think I we. I heard about that. My team heard about that a little bit during our research phase um, for the festival in January as well, with people saying it's all very well if you are based somewhere within reach of, I don't know, Porthos in the Netherlands or Teesside here in the UK, then even though those projects are some way off completion, it, there's still the prospect that you might be able to find a way to link into it. But if you're based in right in the middle of central Europe or I don't know even in rugby in the UK and you're not near one of the clusters that it's not a simple not as simple as people maybe think to kind of uh, to complete that circle of what you know not only a to extract the CO2 but b do something with it um, okay so anyway I interrupted you you were, yeah, that was kind of element one of the roadmap so so taught me taught me through to the next stage um, yeah, our, our second key finding is um, uh, is that actually by using non-recyclable waste and biomass waste as opposed to fossil fuels, we could be saving significant amounts of, uh, of energy and CO2. It's actually up to 15% of our emission reduction between now and, and 2050. And here it's fundamentally different than, than CCUS. So there's no, you know, there's no technological constraint at all. Um, already today, a cement kiln can work using, uh, you know, 70, 80% non-recyclable waste and biomass waste. So we are actually already uh, phasing out fossil fuels. I mean, if you take the European average um, today, we're at 48% uh, usage of non-recyclable waste and biomass waste and 52% and fossil fuels. But there's no there's no technological constraint in terms of you know us increasing this 48% to much you know much higher threshold like like 80 or 90. 
Um, in fact, it's more, it's really purely a policy and regulatory issue. And, and here's a challenge we're facing is, you know, in many European countries, uh, lengthening waste is still a common practice. Uh, whereas actually we would argue that instead of, you know, lengthening this waste, which is causing uh, CO2 emissions, this waste could be redirected, for instance, to, to cement kilns. So it's, it is really, again, you know, I, I stress it's not a technological issue. Uh, we can absorb, you know, much higher shares of, of non-recyclable waste, it's more really of a matter of you know how do you de how do you design policies that really incentivize the use of non-recyclable waste in in cement kilns. Mm. So in that first example of CCOS, which we do hear increasing amounts about in Europe, I think um, the issue there is what tech somewhat technology at scale, but probably mostly how on earth you finance it. Um, and so for kind of biomass for the recycling of waste purely to do with policy, you would say? It is absolutely purely to do with with policy, um, and there, you know, we, we we are active at the European level. We want the institutions to 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 really recognise the importance of of co-processing in the European cement industry. We also want the EU to um, uh, to disincentivise landfill where where, where it can. Uh, there, there is, for instance, you you have the upcoming review of the EU Waste Shipment Directive, and and you know something we really hope is. Um, uh, you know, this occasionally makes the news, but some European countries are exporting waste uh, in countries like Malaysia or Indonesia, and we should, yeah, I think we should just stop this, and, and this waste, where possible, um, uh, should be redirected towards cement, cement factories, because we really offer a solution for this. So, any other elements then? So, we've got our waste and the treatment of waste, we've got carbon capture, what else is on your kind of uh, checklist on the roadmap? So, so I have a, a, a couple of additions. I mean, I mean, the third really important finding is on um, is on low carbon cement. So today, um, some of our members are already putting on the market uh, low carbon cements. Um, even some of them are actually putting on the market carbon neutral concrete. So it's not really carbon neutral per se. It's actually carbon neutral through offsetting. Uh, but nonetheless, you know these products exist, and uh, and and you know they're they're accessible to to to, to construction companies on on the market. But what we see today is uh, okay. I mean these products have a certain success, but this success could be much more higher. And it's true that today, if you're a construction company, you don't really have massive incentives to use a low carbon cement as opposed to just a regular cement. So I think, you know, this is something policymakers will need to look at. Um, it's an area which is just being developed, really, as, as I told you, you know, it's, it's really an emerging market for, for our, our members and, and quite a promising one. But I think that's really something that policymakers will need to look at is how do we incentivize consumers, which in our case, you know, are, are mostly large, large European construction companies. How do we incentivize them to, uh, to use low carbon cements? That's interesting because where a lot of the policy that we talk about through Decarb Connect really is like at European level or a national level, you know, it's about the US policy system, something uh, that type of policy you're referring to could be local. It could be a council-led incentive. It could be local government and that more local-led initiatives about um, both, you know, I guess domestic housing that's being built or infrastructure product, uh, projects. Um, are you seeing are you seeing any kind of movement in kind of more regional or local policy or, or just not not yet? I think this is really burgeoning, uh, but I, I am aware of certain projects where, 
you know, it's it's more, you, you know, municipality wants to build a, you, you know, a specific building, uh, let's say a new museum, for instance, and they really want it to be uh, zero carbon, then indeed they would they would procure this uh, this carbon neutral concrete for that specific purpose. Uh, but I think, I mean, your, your comment is interesting uh, also because um, public procurement can be a way actually to incentivize those low carbon segments. And that's something I think the European Commission will be looking at as a due to revise the EU green public procurement rules. So I assume this could be, this could actually be part of the scope. I mean, I'm just thinking it's all kind of in the UK news at the moment, um, obviously about our kind of big rail investment that we're making here. Also the kind of expansion of Heathrow and that's just on my, you know, those two are on my mind because it's what I hear in my national news. But I mean, if those projects were geared to or uh, rewarded the use of low carbon product, then that that starts to make a big shift because there's no there's no reason other than financial, right? Why construction or big projects wouldn't use these products? Yes, that's that, 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 that's correct. I mean, the reason is financial. Um, but even then, I mean, that's that's also you know, it's also an interesting thought to see that. Um, Actually, when you look at um, uh, the cost of construction products in a in a building, is actually not so huge as compared to to other costs. So you know that's also something to factor in. That indeed, if you if you're using a lower lower carbon cement, probably it will be more expensive than than, than a regular cement. But overall, those costs, uh, as I understand it, are not you know enormous. If uh, you know in the in the bigger bigger cycle of things. Okay, and then the last the last chunk of your roadmap. Yes, the last chunk is uh, is also very important. It's um, it's it's towards creating a level playing field, and uh, and I think we'll come back to this in a moment when when we discuss carbon border mechanisms. But in a nutshell, um, you know we are very clear that if we want to realize all these investments in the, in the carbon neutrality roadmap, we can't be in a situation where European cement companies are constantly undercut by imports from third countries where there would be no emission trading scheme or no way to to, to account for, for the cost of CO2. So that's, you know, that's a, really the last finding, but one which is really, really important. If we want to decarbonize, uh, if we want to be successful towards carbon neutrality, we need, you know, European players and also non-European players exporting on the EU market to, 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 to pay for the cost of carbon. And, and we need that level playing field to happen. And at the moment, what's the state of play with that? I mean, with I guess there is, because those the Green Deal is sort of still new and still coming to place, is there no kind of mechanism for, for managing that right now? No, so, so today, I mean, there is there is a mechanism. So, so, so you know, um, European companies uh, uh, are on the EU emission trading scheme, uh, but to reflect the fact that um, uh, non-European countries are not part of the ETS, uh, the European company do receive a degree of free allocation. So we don't pay for all our CO2 emissions, if you like, we only pay for, for past of them. But, but nonetheless, you still have a situation where, you know, whilst we pay for a share of our carbon cost, uh, all the EU companies, you know, from uh, all the, sorry, all the non-European companies are not paying for any of these costs when, when they're exporting to, to the EU market. And so, that, that's partly the reason why, uh, as part of the European Green Deal, the Commission came up with this idea of having a carbon border adjustment mechanism, uh, and that's something which uh, which are currently progressing. So you, you you just had a public consultation which was closed uh, a few days ago, actually last week, uh, and now what we're expecting is that the European Commission will will develop their, their legislative proposals um, and that they will publish these by by June 2021. 
So and as, as same bureau, as I told you, we, we do support the, um, uh, the idea of carbon border mechanism because we think we need a level playing field on, on carbon in order to be able to, to decarbonize our industry. Um, and you know what we've seen in the space of, uh, of just a few years really uh, is, is quite a significant um, evolution. So very, very significant increase uh, of imports uh, from from countries uh, bordering the European Union, such as uh, such as for instance Turkey, but also Northern Africa, Russia, and and Belarus. Um, coupled with a with a very significant increase as well as uh, in terms of installed capacity uh, uh, in these countries. So you know we do um, we do defend um, uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism. I mean, what is important is of course you know the devil as in, as in any EU legislation the devil will really be in the details. So you know, there are a number of, of principles that we highlight. I mean, I won't go you know too far in the, in the details, but but you know what we say is um, carbon border adjustment should coexist with uh, with free allocation under the EU ETS. They should be WTO compatible. They should have a wide uh, sectoral scope. So I won't bore you with this, but but we we highlighted a, a number of principles. But but then let me just emphasize the positive thing is um, we just concluded a, um, uh, we just conducted sorry a study through uh, PwC uh, which we started to share with with EU Commission officials uh, last week. And so this study looks at uh, the potential benefits of carbon border adjustments in the European cement industry. And, and notably, what is really interesting is that, um, according to PwC, if if the, if the carbon border adjustments are, are well designed, then they can actually reduce overall CO2 emissions, um, and they can, they can also improve uh, global social welfare. So that's a very very important finding. Yeah, tell me a bit more about that link. What does that what does that mean? You know, how does that work? The link between global social and a kind of a regional carbon. You know, what, what's the link there? So, so, so the link, I mean, what, what PwC have done is, is basically they, they calculated um, the situation of our industry in the coming years between 2020 and 2030, and how we would be facing a risk of carbon leakage. When carbon leakage, you know, happens whereby European uh, production is displaced in, uh, in neighboring countries uh, where... Uh, most often, um, uh, this results in higher CO2 emissions because those neighboring countries are, are not subject to the same CO2 constraints. And so based on this, basically, PwC was, was able to, to devise, you know, how much CO2 savings could uh, a carbon border adjustment bring. And we've also asked them to look at, okay, what would be the impact on, on employment in Europe? And, and again, you know, the impact of a carbon border uh, mechanism is positive uh, in this respect. That's the kind of the lie of the land for carbon border adjustment and carbon border mechanisms. But any like in very practical terms for me, the layman, what what might that look like? So is that were you saying that it's an addition to the ETS and would be sort of part of that? Or we, did you just mean it was going to be similar in its uh, the way that it would work? So, so this is still, you know, under consideration by the Commission. But one of the options, for instance, is to have an ETS mirror system. So, you know, the, the exact same way that uh, EU companies have to surrender CO2 allowances, uh, then we would impose the same thing on on importers. I think, you know, the key rule is where, so, you know, the European industry is not asking for double protection, and we we don't want uh, any form of double protection. But I think the bottom line is, you know, if um, if European suppliers are are paying, you know, be it 10 euros. Uh, per ton of CO2 or 30 euros per ton of CO2, or maybe tomorrow 
if the ETS jumps the roof, you know, maybe 80 euros per ton of CO2, we would like basically importers to pay the exact same price. So it's really about, you know, having a level playing field. It's not about having double protection. It's not about protectionism at all. All right then. Well, let's let's um, move on. But actually, it kind of brings us back to something you were talking about early on, which is that one of the kind of the tone of the Green Deal, if you like, has this big emphasis, not just tones, the, the detail of it has a big emphasis on circular economy. What do you see the cement sector contributing um, in, you know, everyone talks about cradle to cradle uh, as being the kind of key phrase of um, circular economies. So tell me a bit about what, what do you see as the potential for the cement sector to, to really get involved in that? Uh, actually, you know, I think I think the European cement industry is really at the heart of, um, of circular economy. And if you look at, you know, upstream, and that's what I already mentioned, we're, we're already today using very, very large you know, quantities of waste uh, coming from different European cities uh, or, or different European industries, which we are using in our kilns, and we're, we're using it. We're using them, you know, not only to phase out fossil fuel, but also whatever we put into the kiln actually becomes part of, um, of of cement and of our final products. So there's no residue, if you like, when we're when we're using this non-recyclable waste. So that's really, you know, our, our key presence uh, upstream, and then downstream, we, if you look at cement's end product, which is Concrete, concrete is actually a fully recyclable material. So it's not it's not recyclable into new concrete, but it's recyclable into new aggregates, so which you can do, then use to to produce concrete. Or it's also recyclable in the you know in my home country France they use it quite a lot to to recycle it into aggregates for for roads basically. So we have a product which today is, and uh, you know, again, I stress 100, 100% recyclable and which is made, uh, you know, through, the, through the, the production of cement, which is made partly from, from other materials. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced there are many other, you know, stronger, stronger uh, examples of, of products which are, you know, so much at the heart of secular economy. I mean, yes, we have the example of glass, which, you know, which can be made of recycled glass. But we don't have so many examples of an industry like cement, which is, you know, using waste from other industries, bring it into the production process, and then at the end of the day to have a final product which which itself is uh, is recyclable. Um, but now, I mean, you know, we, we already covered a bit the, the idea of co-processing and using alternative fuels. But you know, as I told you, that there are different policy measures to support this. Um, when you look at the recyclability of concrete, uh, there is also you know, a big chunk of effort, I think, that could be made to to ensure that we we recycle, you know, all the concrete which which is available. Um, you, you know, we had a, we had an, an event a couple of weeks ago in the in, in the European industry, and and one of our one of my members said, uh, when I see a building about to be demolished, I see potential uh, raw materials for my business, and I found this really really interesting. And I think you know we need to to support this spirit uh, of really looking at you know how can we do more to, to to recycle concrete so so what is so if that's you know the case is as you say it's already 100 percent recyclable what what is the reason for it not being then is it purely economic or is it that that value chain somehow those links don't exist you know what what's the barrier right now like this year next year what prevents that from happening now yeah that's that, that's a very good question i think i think you know some countries uh have 
have better policies than others uh, on this. I mean, I mean, again, I think I think my, my home country, France, is a good example of you know systematically. You're very biased, Emmanuel, and I'm worried yes. about the amount of <laughs> French flag waving. But no, yeah. carry on. <laughs> so, so it is. It is uh, no, but France is, is systematically trying to uh, to recover. Actually, actually, the, the 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 use concrete. I think I think the big issue is you know there's no real incentive again for a, a construction or demolition company to reuse it. It's just as simple as this. And and that's that's a bit what we're what we're lacking uh, today. So probably a combination of policy, but also just that piece, that valuation of the rubble, <laughs> bluntly, um, kind of making that clear that there is an opportunity to be had there. I think I think that's right, and and, and you know it is, and, and when you look at circular economy, it is actually a lot about you know exactly valuing, in fact, you know valuing waste properly, and then, and that's a bit what I told you with, you know, our issue of uh, all these non-recyclable waste being sent to landfill as as opposed to cement kilns is, you know, some stakeholders sometimes have very little you know incentive, not to landfill stuff, um, and so so I think for, yeah it, it's really about you know providing this this right incentive. Uh, for, for people to, you know, reuse and recycle. Well, then in a, a sort of slight shift then, so we've talked about the, the roadmap, we've talked about what circular economy is and certainly means within the cement sector. So more broadly then, what when you look at your own industry, so this is now back, you know, looking back on all your cement uh, sector members, what do you think is going to be important to, to making decarbonisation, not just stick it's kind of a clunky word i've been using but really become central to how companies think what's going to need to happen within those businesses within your sector well i mean firstly i'm really glad you're asking this question because i think i think it's extremely important to to create this buy-in and in particular you know create the buy-in from from employees um so i don't have any any magical solution but uh, i think you know the role of every one of us has has changed actually and uh and, and 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 this, in a way, is, is probably you know thanks also to the activism of uh, of Greta Thunberg and of of you know of the different climate change movements. We now you know all feel all have the feeling, and and we are now all part of this move towards towards decarbonisation. And and I think many leaders in the sector. I mean, if you if you ask to to some of our CEOs, uh, but also even even at a lower lower level, you know, to, to somebody like me, we all feel we have a responsibility to to make this happen. And I think it's really about really you know conveying this need for for change. Um, you know, realizing that climate change is no longer really for any of us a, a very distant threat. I mean, okay, maybe we will deal with it but it will impact our kids our, our grandkids and, and I think you know in a way we're all becoming parts really of um, uh, you, you know of, of this shift and we, we, we all have a responsibility to, to, to make this shift happen uh, now I mean how is this uh, happens uh, in different companies. I think it's really through embedding uh, sustainability as much as possible. Uh, you know, in all corners of the companies. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I'm not very keen on quoting specific members of some bureau, but some of them, for instance, have uh, you know have appointed a, a chief, uh, a, you know, chief environmental uh, specialist within you know within their company, really to ensure that uh, this need for sustainability is reflected in in you know in all their activities. So. That's that's an example. Um, I think I think the, you know the key would also get to to be you know the buy-in from from all the employees. Uh, and here I think in the cement industry, you know, again we 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 have potentially an asset because um, you know we 
the cement industry is, is an industry where, where employees used to be extremely proud because they're providing what is, you know, unquestionably the best construction product material. I'm being a bit biased there again, <laughs> but but I think it is. Um, uh, but 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 you know, the past years have been have been more challenging because uh, because the because the CO2 um, uh, emissions from from the industry have been have been exposed in media as well, and I think you know a, a way for us and for our employees to also regain our pride is to say, okay, not only are we, pro are we providing this you know fantastic construction material, but on top of this, we're helping to decarbonize it on a day to day basis, and eventually we will provide a product which is which is carbon neutral. And I think this is a really, you know, that's a really exciting task um, uh, at hand. And the the last thing which I wanted to say, which which is more a personal reflection on my on my own uh, work, is, um, you know, I, I've been in Brussels now for for 15 years, as I as I told you, and I can tell you, 10 years ago, when when the EU was coming up with new climate change objectives. Um, some European industries. So I'm not quoting cement in particular, but some some European cement some European sorry some European industries uh, would be saying, oh no, but this EU target is really too high. We can't, you know, we can't meet it. It's going to be too tough. So therefore, therefore, you know, our CO2 ambitions should be should not be that high. Uh, I think nobody is really saying this anymore. I think things have changed now. Today, in practice, what we're fighting for is, okay, we know that the there is a clear trajectory towards carbon neutrality. What we need is really, you know, supporting measures to help us making all these decarbonization investments. So I think things have really, you know, radically shifted in Brussels. Uh, some years ago, you had, you know, industries fighting against uh, too ambitious climate change objectives. Now I think broadly, we, you know, everybody accepts that, you know, science is, is key behind defining the objective. It's really about setting up the right political uh, framework and the right, you know, framework for industrial investments to to allow decarbonization to happen. Okay, well, last question for you then. Um, so we've talked, we've obviously talked about your roadmap, we've talked about this view on what's needed from industry and the kind of perspective of industry. Tell me, like, if you were going to make your little wish list of one thing that you wish industry would crack this year, one thing from the technology companies, one thing from policy, one from investment, what, what's, what's on that wish list for you of things that you think, I just, I want to see this this issue nailed in the next year or 18 months? So I think on the side of policymakers, it would really be a global level playing field on carbon because I, you know, we need to take the populations and, and you know, European citizens and workers with us um, on, on this journey to, to decarbonization. And I don't think you can achieve this if, uh, you know, if it results in, in closure of companies. Um, so, yeah, I think I think we will need this from, from policymakers. Um, from from our industry, I mean, what, what I would love to see, and I'm, I'm and, you know, in this respect, I'm quite happy because I see it happening, is a lot of investment in, uh, in decarbonization technologies. And I think there's a lot to be proud of, um, and especially on a technology like, like carbon capture and use and storage, where, uh, you know, as far as I can see, the European cement industry is really becoming, you know, the leading sector in terms of implementation of this uh, of this technology. Uh, and now, in terms of technology providers, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, what I will say will, will sound very obvious coming from, uh, you know, the representative of an industry using this technology. But of course, we want, you know, very good products at a cheaper price, and uh, and therefore we're we're looking forward, especially to uh, yeah, to, to CCUS being, you know, fully uh, investable and, and scalable. And uh, and you know, I'm aware a lot of of good, you know, technology companies are, are making tremendous efforts um, on that road. And investors? 
Uh, investors, I mean, I, so, so you know, the framework for investors will, will change quite a lot because the, the EU, I mean, we, we haven't touched this yet, but the EU have uh, just finalizing the taxonomy requirements whereby, whereby they will actually indicate to investments what are, to, to investors were, you know, what can qualify as, as green investment or not. Um, you know, what we expect from investors is really, you know, on the basis of the EU taxonomy rules to, to support the European cement industry. Uh, cement is actually included in those, in those taxonomy rules. So, so you know, it's a, it's a very good uh, opportunity, I think, for investors to really support the investments um, uh, in our industries that will lead to decarbonisation. Emmanuel, thank you so much, um, mostly for giving me your time, but also good detailed answers, which is what we love when it comes to policy, because I think policy has the ability to clarify or totally obfuscate. And I would hazard a guess that for some people, the Green Deal has done both. But uh, I think that was a really useful overview. So thank you. And um, to everyone that's listening, um, please tune in again. We'll be talking with the Global Carbon Capture Institute soon and also have a number of other industry interviews lined up. But for now, Emmanuel, thank you very much. Thank you, Alex.